understand you studied philosophy at school. Uh, no, that's not true. I, I, I did take, I took one course in existential philosophy at, uh, at New York University, and uh, <coughs> on, uh, on the final, they gave me ten questions, and uh, I couldn't answer a single one of them, you know? I left them all blank. I got a hundred. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. Today, we hop into the Formula One race car with Senna and talk to Ben's dad about when you let your kids see certain movies and why he let Ben see Terminator 2 when he was six years old. But first, Ben, listeners might know that this is our last show here on 90.7 this morning, so maybe I'm feeling in a more contemplative mood because of that or because of the film we're discussing this week. But what is it exactly, do you think, that led you and I to this moment here in Reese Pfeiffer Hall. I'm not talking about the alarms that woke us up this morning or the cars we drove here in, but rather a longer scale look at our lives. What choices did we make that led us to become the sort of people we are who would, uh, I don't know, host a movie talk show? What has influenced us? And I would argue that throughout our lives, our very nature is determined by moments, uh, by memories, and by influences we might not even realize from those who surround us from a young age to determine how exactly we'll go through this world as human beings and how we'll interact with one another. And that doesn't even begin to address the cosmic or biological issues that led to our existence or even the existence of humanity itself here on one single planet surrounding one of any number of billions of stars. Questions addressing not how we should live, but how we even came to be and why. These are the sort of questions that religions are founded to answer, and rarely the sorts of questions that films are made to address. But here we have a filmmaker as brave as Terrence Malick, and a film as audacious as The Tree of Life, which has tackled the very existence, or the very essence of human existence, and our relationship with God and the unknowable. There are two ways through life. The way of nature, and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. We're alligators. You'll be grown before that tree is tall. It takes fierce will to get ahead in this world. Come on, hit me. Hit me. Come on, son. He's afraid of you. You expect things that an only adult can accomplish. I've just always wanted you to be strong, be your own man. Father, mother, always you wrestle inside me. Always you will. Someday we'll fall down and weep. And we'll understand it all. Picked through our young protagonist, Jack, played by Hunter McCracken, the formation of a personality through choices. As a voiceover at the beginning of the film tells us, through the dueling forces of nature, which exists only to please itself, and grace, which exists to love unconditionally. And we see literal manifestations of these forces in Jack's parents, the capricious Mr. O'Brien, played by Brad Pitt, and the almost ethereally good Mrs. O'Brien, played by Jessica Chastain. As Jack grows older, he begins to ponder the relationship of these forces to the world that surrounds him, and the involvement of a god that allows bad things to happen, including a loss much later in his life that haunts the adult Jack, played by Sean Penn. Now, that's a lot of setup for an ostensible coming-of-age drama, but Ben, coming-of-age dramas don't usually feature 20-minute interludes depicting the creation of the universe and the development of life on Earth. So The Tree of Life is a movie that requires, let's say, some heavy lifting from its audience 
But to start off, did this movie provoke the same questions, these these big questions in you and the same consideration that it did in me? Well, first of all, I feel like I need as much time to process your intro that I did for Tree of Life. <laughs> that was deep stuff, Corey. Well done. Yes, it did provoke those questions and those thoughts in me, and it wouldn't be a Terrence Malick movie if it didn't. That sort of comes with the territory at this point, and he's done that for the past five movies, including Tree of Life. This is his fifth this feature. This is his fifth feature. Everything goes back to this quote we see at the beginning of the movie, which is a passage from the book of Job in the Bible. And you and I and other film enthusiasts have been treated to a number of stories in the past few years that have referenced or paralleled the book of Job and what Job had to experience, these characters sort of have to experience as well. And that's what I was thinking about throughout. And that's what I was thinking about after the movie is the why and these questions that the young son is asking as well as the other characters who have this whispered voiceover narration, this Malikian trademark at this point, where they're asking, where were you? and why and they ask these questions why are these bad things happening and where were you when they were happening and that's all i could honestly think about and i mean you, you do ask the questions that they ask when you look at your own life and you see the bad things that happen but all you can do is just go with it i think it was a serious man that said accept the mystery i think the question at the beginning of that movie was whatever happens to you just accept it can't remember if there was another film that said that act with simplicity or accept it with simplicity anyway you have to do that and this movie sort of addresses the same exact thing I'm not criticizing Malik for exploring familiar territory. The Bible is completely familiar territory. But I think it's interesting that we get this spiritual experience from Terrence Malik, something that we've only sort of halfway seen. I think it's much more explicit this time. And he's sort of letting us know what he's wearing on his sleeve. This is obviously Terrence Malick's most personal film. And this guy is such a reclusive filmmaker. And, and I think finally we're sort of let inside of the mind of Terrence Malick. And we get to know him much more with this film than we would through an interview that he might do with somebody. And this film has been called Indulgent by a lot of people, and Malick's filmmaking has too. But honestly, I think in some cases you have to be indulgent if you're going to tell this kind of a story. Did we necessarily have to sit through 20 minutes of the birth of the cosmos and the universe? Maybe not, but that's how Terrence Malick wanted to tell his story. And if he feels like that's justified or this story is justified by that opening, I accept it. And yes, the narrative doesn't necessarily directly relate specifically to that opening, but had that not happened, this story would not have happened, and I totally get the connection, and I, I don't think it was unnecessary at all. But yes, I do think that it does provoke these big questions. Well, yeah, Malik is not the sort of person who will underline narrative connections for you, and particularly not in this movie. I liken this movie to, to a poem that needs to be explicated rather than discussed in terms of plot. There are so many things here to unravel visual motifs upon visual motifs. For example, I mean, just the w appearances of water in this movie and then appearances of, well, these shots of an adult Sean Penn walking through a desert. You know, these aren't things that are spelled out for the viewer, but I think an attentive viewer and somebody... I guess, accustomed to, I don't know, watching films that require heavy lifting will find a lot here to enjoy. And then, I mean, just on a basic visual level, I think Terrence Malick and his uh, cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubieski, basically have provided a master class on how to shoot movies like this. Not even really the cosmic stuff, which is also beautiful, but just the sequence of the, the extended sequence in the film that takes place in... Uh, a 1950s Texas town and follows a young young Jack, particularly the very, very young Jack when he's an infant and you have this, this, this camera that almost just never stops moving and you get this child's eye view of the world. And really, the, the, it's almost like the point of view develops as Jack grows older. You start seeing more, You the camera, literally the height of the shots gets taller and you start seeing more and more through his eyes. But this is, I mean, for my money, one of the best looking movies I've seen in, in years. I don't recall many static shots in this movie I at don't all. think there are too many. Like you said, the camera is constantly moving and that's always been another trademark of Malick's, but maybe not as apparent as in this movie and yes it is visually stimulating it's breathtaking at times especially during that opening sequence but like you I, I found a lot of the visual elements during the 1950s Texas sequence to be the strongest of the film 
what's interesting is that this movie is told from the perspective directly of the Jack character. It's told through such a dreamlike perspective that we're not exactly sure what are memories and what are dreams when we're watching this movie because he's having to remember back to his childhood and you have these moments which seem fairly abstract where you're visiting an attic or you see something in the kitchen move that you didn't think might have actually moved and that might be a dream from his childhood or from present day but it's also a possibility that it's a memory too this is how he remembers his father this is how he remembers his mother and each of them have taken these paths that are laid out in the opening moments of the movie they're either going via grace or via nature and i just think those are interesting and what's so what's so glorious about this is the first part of jack's childhood you know those sequences are are like you said just fragments of here and there you know you've got this shot where uh it looks like a man starts having a seizure in their front yard and he's led away from it and and you know just it quickly cuts to the next little memory fragment you know it doesn't even dwell on that and it just reminds me so much of i mean everybody has these disconnected memories of their of their childhoods you know you piece together what you can and it just seems like you said so incredibly personal from terrence malick i mean in that way though it just it serves to make it immediately accessible to everybody watching the movie because i mean even if you don't see how it ties together narratively everybody has that everybody has that sort of view of their own childhood and and this movie just presents i don't know it, it it's just one of the purest presentations of memory and of childhood i've ever seen in a film yeah and it doesn't call attention to the time period that it's depicting either it's 1950s you didn't really hear any music that was related to the era you didn't see many things i mean it looked like real life to me back in the 1950s and we have someone here in studio that can speak to that much more than we can but joining us here is my dad Steve Flanagan again, who's here for the first time since his appearance last February when you talked about the Coen brothers with author Kathleen Falsani. But, Dad, there were some people who walked out of this movie when we went and saw it at the Bama Theater, and that was to be expected. But there weren't as many walkouts as I thought there might be, maybe four or five. But I don't think that this movie is inaccessible necessarily. It does explore deep themes, but they're not exactly complex. I think that it speaks to whoever is watching it and they're going to be able to understand it thematically, but I think that it really the visuals are going to help them more than anything. I think he gets childhood better than any filmmaker has in recent memory, but talking about the spiritual elements of this and whether it's accessible to the mainstream, you teach Sunday school from time to time. Do you think that this is a movie that can speak to the people in your Sunday school class or at your church or just people in general? Across the spectrum, everyone can potentially relate to this movie, absorb this movie, or not get it. One analogy I would make in relation to what you just said about people walking out, uh, you remember April 27th, there was a tornado in Tuscaloosa, and there had to be people here that didn't know there was a tornado. When you saw those videos of cars driving on, I- on 359, they seemed oblivious that there was a tornado. So. A person can walk into this movie and not know what they're going to get. They're going to see a Brad Pitt movie and not know what they're going to get. They could walk off the street, and then when they realize they're <laughs> in Terrence Malick's fifth movie in how many years, they're not expecting what what's presented there. So certainly, I think that can happen. But let me say, too, Corey, uh, what you started the show with was Craftian. I heard Malikian earlier. Uh, that's probably the most profound intro ever expressed on WVUA. So uh. I don't know. I thought our Jonah Hex intro was <laughs> on the level. Jonah Hex intro. But, I mean, you went to see Terrence Malick movies uh, as they were in the theater, did you not? Did you see Badlands oh, yeah. in the theater and Days of Heaven, too? I've only, I haven't seen all. I haven't seen uh, the, 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 the last movie that came out. The New the, World? The New World. I saw Badlands. Mm-hmm. I saw Days of Heaven. I saw the, uh, the... Thin Red Line. Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, I'm not a Malick scholar, but uh, certainly affected by the music of his films in particular. But uh, the spiritual themes, certainly very profound film biblically connected I know Malik is uh, is a uh, I think he's a Christian I think he's Episcopalian he didn't he referenced job mm-hmm. in the uh, the narrative didn't reference Genesis but tree of life is referenced in Genesis uh, not with detail it's, it's balanced against the, the tree of knowledge 
history of life is there as well. It's in other traditions as well, religious traditions as it's mentioned. But the other, there are other biblical references as well, Proverbs and in Revelation, to the tree of life. Well, you don't see it very often where a, I guess, an outwardly Christian filmmaker on Malick's level artistically comes out and sort of tells his audience that, yes, I am Christian, here are my views in so many ways. And I think he does it here in Tree of Life. There's several sequences that suggest Malik's beliefs. I think a person of faith should not feel that they should necessarily hold back when they're attempting to express their thoughts, their their beliefs, their philosophies. You put yourself out there. You put yourself out there for criticism and platitudes, for for affirmation or, or consternation. So, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's being straightforward. I think he's objectivist in a way. He's just getting his uh, his thoughts and uh, beliefs out there. One thing we're going to talk about a little later, and another reason you're here, Dad, is we're going to talk about parenting. And in this movie, I think parenting plays a huge role, and the audience is almost put on the spot and having to choose which parent they might think does a better job, because it doesn't really come across as much of a collaborative effort on the part of Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain's characters. They have two different parenting styles, and you see in the movie where he is a just complete disciplinarian Whereas Corey, like you said, she's this sort of ethereal, good person who sort of allows them to do what they will because she knows they're good kids. They're not going to get into too much trouble. But do you think that Brad Pitt's character, Mr. O'Brien, was a good parent or do you think he was too hard on his kids? He was a parent. As y'all were speaking to earlier about the movement in this film, it's constant. The river, as you mentioned, the upward look to the trees, the downward uh, elevator scenes from the skyscrapers, the projects. If you noticed that uh, they were doing jigsaw puzzle in the film, there was work on the lawn, constant work on the lawn by one of the boys, the garden, things in action. It's a journey. The view of the parent changes. It goes from love, connection, to uh, movement away, to hate, and then back again as the, the young man puts his life into perspective. His view of his dad goes from I want him to die to I'm sorry. So it's, it's, it's a journey. It's about a journey of life and uh, those, those paths, the road of grace or the road of nature. It's, it's a beautiful film. Well, and it's not like Brad Pitt, Corey, is ever ugly to his kids. He's never so hard on them where there's a moment where there's a lot of tension and there's a physical action that he takes in response to one of the kids, but he's never really abusive to these kids. He's just trying to teach them what he knows. He's doing it the only way he knows how to do it. But what did you think of his parenting style, I guess, versus Chestain's? I don't know, it doesn't pass judgment on him necessarily, but it does sort of develop his character, I would say, a lot more than, than her character. You know, she's she's more symbolic, I feel like, and, and he is this sort of failed musician or wannabe musician who is envious of other people's money, other people's success, and, and just views his job as just small and, and sort of beneath him. He, he aspires to greatness and upon not reaching greatness has has been frustrated. But, I mean, you do get the sense also that, I mean, he's, he's not just drawn by the, those characteristics. I, I wonder if they inform his parenting style, but... I mean, he loves his family. He says so, you know, multiple times. I think there's a line near the end where he says something like, if it weren't for you boys, I'd I'd have just drawn a zilch regarding his life. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I mean, I agree. The perspective of, of the parents does shift gradually throughout the movie, particularly near the end of the movie in regards to Brad Pitt's character. It, I think it becomes more, I don't know, fairer, I guess. It, it does become fairer. Because you don't really get that narration from, you, you do get a bit of narration where he's talking about his life. Near the end of the movie, it's almost like that that motivation and that, that deep sadness is withheld from the audience for the majority of the movie. Which I thought, you know, that's interesting. You, you, you see the parent and you see the parent's actions without really understanding the motivations until much later. But as a child, maybe that's, that's how it is. You know, you don't really understand why your parents are doing what they're doing mm-hmm. necessarily in, you know, when they're raising you. It's only, you know, upon backwards reflection that you that you start to understand that sort of motivation. Hit me. Come on. Hit me. Come on. Come on, Jack. Hit me. Hit me. Hit me. Come on. Come on. Hit. Here it is. Here it is. Hit me. Come on, son. Come on. Son. Left. What are you doing? 
Left. Don't leave your tongue out. You're going to lose it. Left. Left. Right. Right. Left. Harder. 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 Come on. Hit me. Hit me. Come on, son. Hit. Give me some. Show me what you got. Come on. Go on. Absolutely. And again, we see it all from this child's perspective his dad's behavior which he might not understand and if he doesn't understand it then we might not understand it and we have to decide I guess during the experience and afterwards what kind of job he did but I just thought it was interesting how you have these sequences of Brad Pitt almost telling them what to do every step of the way how they're behaving at the dinner table how they're doing their chores he's having to correct them constantly and then you have a sequence where he has left town on a business trip and immediately the house dynamic completely changes they are excited they're running throughout the house and that includes the mother too she's participating like a child with her own children and i just thought that was very funny but when he comes back home they're happy to see him too and i thought that that was a beautiful sequence too when he greets them and when he does act as this disciplinarian it is uh, unsettling i guess at times just again from the child's perspective but by the end of most of the scenes he does tell them that he loves them he embraces them. He shows them affection. So you're right. It, the film doesn't pass judgment on it. I think it gives a fairly objective perspective on his role as a father. But, Corey, you're a big Terrence Malick fan. Yeah. This, to me, is almost like the quintessential Terrence Malick movie. Just sort of a lot of those themes that we've already seen in the visual palette of Malick just sort of rolled up into one big experience. And it just feels like he's kind of putting all of himself and all of what he's accomplished out there in this one movie. Was that your experience? or does Tree of Life stack up a certain way with the rest of his film? This is the quintessential Malick movie. I don't think anybody, like, this is the most Terrence Malick movie that will ever be made by anybody, including (laughs) Terrence Malick. This movie is just crammed with subtext, with philosophical questions, with so much beauty in the filmmaking. I don't know, it's one of a kind, even amongst his filmography. I mean, you know, it, it is, it does concern itself with some of the same things that some of his other films do. I mean, you obviously get a lot of the, of similar philosophical issues in The Thin Red Line, but this movie to me is just, I mean, it stands alone amongst his filmography as the pinnacle of this sort of filmmaking. Well, Dad, it's really hard for me and the rest of our family to sort of get a straight answer from you sometimes. And I want to put you on the spot here and ask you, did you like Tree of Life? Yes. (laughs) Are you satisfied? Well, what about the questions asked by the uh, characters in the film? Mm -hmm. What were they doing? They were whispering their questions Mm -hmm. to God. Right. Why? Why did you do that? You know, were they getting answers? Were they getting straight answers? They weren't getting answers. Where do you get your answers? You get it over time. You get the answers from your experience. Yes, no, it's not that simple. (laughs) It's quite a parallel there, Dad. People would ask me after this movie, you know, immediately outside the Bama Theater, what did you think? And I had to tell them, I'm still processing this right now. I can't answer that question. You know, all I could say was that that was quite an experience. Well, you're still thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, you're thinking about it here Saturday morning. You'll continue to think about it. That's the significance of this film, and uh, that's the way Malik works. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness he does. And uh, how many other films do you get that challenge you in this way to consider it, to be disturbed, to be uh, affirmed? It's, it's, a, it's a great film. The last film I can think of that provoked this response in me, you've already mentioned it. It's Joel and Ethan Coen's A Serious Man. Man. I think that's kind of ironic, though, because I find the Coen's view of the universe and the cosmos somewhat unsettling, and I find this, you know, affirming. Hmm. And and I think it has to do maybe with the cosmos sequence, and I think that's why this movie gets to me so much. You may not find that that's narratively connected so much, except for the fact that if all of this other stuff, if these billions and billions of years didn't happen, we wouldn't have the drama playing out that we have. But in paralleling the very beginning of the universe with the actions of one child on the planet Earth, 1950s, you know, and one human being, it just, it seems to draw it all together, that that this life is no less important than this galaxy in the eyes of a creator who might have been putting it all together. And I do think that the movie does take a very explicit spiritual 
I, I don't I don't know there there are some hints towards Christianity, but certainly. I mean, it overtly acknowledges the existence of God in the creation of the universe and in what leads to Jack. But it, it seems comforting, and particularly, you know, in regards to the ending, which I, I don't think you can spoil this movie, really. This is, but, but the ending, which also flashes forward to what will be the heat decay of the universe, of the Earth being absorbed by the sun, and the eventual end of time, so to speak, and in presence of a very comforting look at that too whereas i don't think the cohen's i don't know that that's in their worldview necessarily this is a movie that needs to be seen more than once and i plan on seeing it again and it's one that stays with you just like a serious man i was thinking about a serious man a week after i saw it for the first oh, time yeah. and i went back and watched it again and I, found so much more and it's such a rich experience and i think that this is very similar yeah. I remember the bridge keeper in uh, It's a Wonderful Life when Clarence is drying out his gown there and he says he's an angel. And Clarence says to the man as he walks backward out of the uh, the shack, carry on, my good man, if that's your view of this film, you know, yeah. carry on. The film is playing in limited release still. I feel like we could just keep going. <laughs> just, we probably there's, could. There's so much to talk about, but... But man, what what a great movie! I don't think it's playing anywhere in Alabama at this point. I, I don't think so. Well, coming up, Ben's brother Graham will be joining us to talk about the new documentary Senna. Stick around. We're back on Aspect Radio. Joining us on the phone is my brother Graham Flanagan in New York for what's in limited release. Graham. Welcome to the show, Graham. This is somebody who has definitely seen Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, which we have just discussed. Is it as sticky hot up there as it is down here, or do you have anything no, else? No, it's it's actually uh, it's very cool outside. It's like it's in the high sixties. Uh, we've just we've had a uh, significant drop in the temperature, uh, and it's definitely a welcome drop after what's been a pretty humid couple of weeks. Well, Graham, this week you went with, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Asif. Capadia, his documentary about famed Brazilian Formula One racer Ayrton Senna, a three-time world champion who not too many Americans will know about. 78, I came to Europe to compete for the first time. It was pure driving. It was real racing. And that, that makes me happy. among the all-time greats. How do you feel about being world champion? It's not a bad feeling at all, is it? Ayrton <laughs> has a small problem. He thinks that he can't kill himself. And I think that's very dangerous. You are competing to win. And if you no longer go for a gap, you're no longer a racing driver. was treated like a criminal. The best decision is my decision. I can't stand this. Walking away from the dark forces just doesn't become an option. I was not going to give up. So have any of your girlfriends ever asked you to go faster? Yeah. <laughs> there was an energy, a force, a spirit. It was electrifying. I'm just curious, I know that this trailer was released and this movie was released in New York and L.A., but why did you choose Cinna? It's been out for a week. It opened last week, and I just saw that it, it was getting a lot of positive acclaim. It won a major prize at the Sundance Film Festival this year. I'm intrigued by racing and Formula One racing. I'm definitely not, I wouldn't call myself a fan at all, but I enjoy fast cars, and um, and I so I thought, hey, why not just uh, check out this documentary might learn something so i uh, went down to the landmark sunshine cinema last night where the film was screening in their largest house uh in that in that little art house multiplex full house sold out crowd 
of about 300 people, uh, which was really surprising for, like you said, uh, a movie about a subject that not too many Americans are familiar with. And But the thing is, there were a lot of people uh, in the in the crowd who obviously did care about Formula One. That There is an, uh, uh, an audience for this movie. And which I think is why it's it's doing so well overseas, especially in Japan and Brazil, uh, where Formula One is, is such a big deal. Now, Ayrton Senna, the, the man who, who's the, the focus of this documentary, is Brazilian. And this movie, very similar uh, in, to the way that the, the ESPN 30 for 30 films are constructed, it's, it's completely comprised of archival footage. No current interviews or recreations. It's all basically footage from, you know, Speed Vision and ESPN and, and European TV uh, newscasts. So you're, you're kind of thrust back into this specific era, and it chronicles the time period uh, from when Senna broke out on the Formula One scene in the early 80s until his uh, tragic demise in 1994. And I have to say, I, not being an expert or a fan of Formula One, I was, I was definitely uh, drawn in by this movie. Uh, I thought it was a little long at times, he was a three-time world champion, and they 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 devoted uh, a lot of the movie's running time to just showing exactly how he achieved each one of those championships. But the movie succeeds based on the fact that Senna himself he was such a um, a charismatic character, and uh, you know this is kind of it's weird and abstract and abstract all that I had. It's like we always wonder, you know, what if there are other civilizations out there happening concurrently with ours, and what if we found out what they were up to? Well, I mean. This was this, all of this was happening when I was about ten and twelve years old, and I had no idea who Ayrton Senna was or who who the top Formula One race car drivers were during that period. But in other parts of the world, this was the news. Okay? I mean, this was a sensation. This was what everyone was talking about. This threw thousands, hundreds of thousands of fans every week that followed this, and this guy was literally like a Michael Jordan figure. So to see, you know, the way he was perceived at the time as it's presented in this movie was sort of a cool feeling, you know, knowing that, you know, I was 10 and 12 years old. This never got any coverage on ESPN, uh, on SportsCenter or anything like that. And just to kind of to see, oh, yeah, by the way, this was going on while you were alive. It's it's not only a sports movie, but it's also gave me sort of a feeling of being like in, in an anthropology class where you kind of get an idea of what other cultures are into. Um, so I, I definitely recommend it. I have a feeling that it will probably air on ESPN because ESPN Films is now uh, one of the distributors of the movie. But obviously it's getting a theatrical release because, and, and it's been validated because there's such a, an audience uh, for this internationally. Well, what about Senna's story in particular do you find compelling, and what do you think the filmmakers found so compelling where they would make a theatrical release out of it, a two-hour documentary that they thought even American audiences might appreciate. Well, I mean, he was he was such a huge star that you find that out when you watch the movie that you can go ahead and say okay, he deserves a film about it. You know, we can make a theatrical film about this guy. But what's fascinating is um he started out and this is chronicled in the movie. He started out uh in his late teens as a go-kart rider on the on the go-kart circuit. Uh he came from a, a pretty comfortable family who said, okay, we'll support your dream of being the race car driver. And he really he started as a basically driving tiny go-karts where you kind of crouch on the go-karts and go around these little tracks. And I thought that was pretty fascinating that, you know, he, he had such a desire just to race from an early age that he, he said, you know, I'm going to start here and, you know, my dream is to be a Formula One champion, but I have to start here, start at the bottom, prove myself on every rung of the ladder before I can get there. And that basic desire to compete and to win stays with him the entire time and everything that he does and his and his personality. You know, while he is, like I said, charismatic, he's not uh, totally outgoing. There's a lot of mystery there. He, he, he has a lot of faith in God. He constantly talks about his faith in God. Uh, and honestly, it's uh, things just seem to kind of tick right along for him. I mean, he, he joins the circuit. He has immediate success. A few years after that, he becomes the number one driver in the world. Um, he's surrounded by beautiful women, a lot of them blonde uh, Brazilian TV personalities. You know, he, he enjoys driving around on his boat and jet skis and just having a good time. But it's all this is leading up to, like I said, tragedy that is directly related to his passion, which, uh, you know, and, and most people obviously seeing this movie, they, they remember if they have any familiarity with, with him or with Formula One history, they'll know 
how it ends. But, you know, knowing that that's coming, obviously it casts this, this shadow on all the fun that's being had. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a, uh, like a A to Z, here's who this guy was, oh, and here's, here's how he ended his life. It is a very interesting, compelling, and, and often moving, moving story. Well, Graham, would you say that you found an, a new appreciation for Formula One racing at this point after seeing this movie? Or are you going to start setting your DVR for Speed Vision shows? <laughs> I, you know, for me, I, actually, I, I was able to do a story recently for my, my day job where I was uh, at a racetrack um, where there were Ferraris going around the track all day at high speeds. And, I mean, for me... What I love about it is the sound. I love that sound of, of a of a race car revving up and, and hitting those those speeds of you know upwards of two hundred miles an hour. And there's a lot of that in this movie. And there's just something about that. And it's ever since I was out there that day, maybe three weeks ago, that is something that I cannot get enough of. So I uh, dad often jokes about uh, the channel Speed Vision as a. Uh, it's guaranteed no matter when you tune into Speed Vision, there'll be constant movement. And I suppose that's stuck with me, and it's true about this movie, too. There's constant movement, um, and I enjoy that about racing. It is, While it is uh, dangerous, potentially fatal um, for those involved, yes, I can see why it is uh, such a phenomenon all over the world. You just love it when those cars whiz by, don't you? I do. I do. <laughs> well... The film is playing in limited release in select cities. We appreciate it, Graham. And if you'll stick around with us for the next segment, if you have some time, we'd appreciate it as well. Absolutely. All right. When we come back, we'll keep it in the family and have Ben's dad on to talk about when parenting meets movies and when you decide to let your kids see R-rated movies and why. Stay with us. I hate guys. I love women. Come on, Grizzly Adams. 90.7. Welcome back to Aspects Radio with Corey Kraft. I'm Ben Flanagan. My brother Graham is still with us on the line, and we're also joined by my and Graham's dad, Steve Flanagan. Dad, it's good to have you back in the studio, and we're going to take a few trips back down memory lane here for what I think should be an interesting discussion. I think Graham and I will get way more out of this than you, Corey, but we'll see what happens. We brought you in here for a very specific purpose, Dad. I almost feel like you have some explaining to do, and our mom, Kathy, might feel the same way. Now, I can't speak for you, Corey, but Graham and I have had an interest in film ever since we could really remember anything. It obviously started with children's movies, especially the Disney stuff. We watched a lot of that, and we liked it. But we quickly graduated to other films. I guess kids wouldn't normally watch these movies at our age, but not necessarily anything inappropriate, just different. This might be due to the fact that, like us, more than a decade later here at University of Alabama, our dad was a film major in college. So if I were you, and if I had three kids with this kind of interest in movies, I would be really excited about what kinds of movies I could share with them. This even stretched beyond watching movies at home or in the theater. One Halloween, when Graham was maybe 13 and I was about 10 years old, we were brainstorming costume ideas. We couldn't come up with anything. And so Dad pulled this out of nowhere, and he finally suggested we should be droogs or droogies. And we had no idea what you meant by that, Dad. And you said something like, you know, from a clockwork orange. And in retrospect, we're thinking, no, Dad. <laughs> We're 10 and 13 years old, and to your and mom's credit, we aren't familiar with A Clockwork Orange yet. So we found some bowler hats, some long johns, and some canes, and we hit the streets. And uh, I'm just curious, do you remember what I'm talking about here, Dad? I do, and it was based upon having long johns in the drawer, <laughs> basically. Uh, well, have to cut, have to think quickly when you haven't come up with your costume idea prior to that time. So it was just convenient. But well, yeah, yeah, the, the film... Having seen the film helped. Okay, well, that sort of brings us to our discussion here. And I'm sure this really all started with Graham, who was the earliest to express any desire to see R-rated movies, or even more mature PG-13 stuff. And it turns out that you and Mom were pretty receptive to Graham. And as his little brother who shared this interest, I often, too, got the benefit of your permission to see these movies. And we saw a few R-rated movies on video when we were younger, but the big one came in 1991 when the two of us finally saw an R-rated film at the theater. It turned out that it was Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And I don't remember too clearly, but I'm sure the process mainly involved Graham begging you to let him see it. 
and you did. And I, a six-year-old, tagged along for what he and I would later consider one of the most awesome film experiences of our life. At the time, we thought that. But one with a lot of violent and profane content. So I'll start off with this. Why did you let us see that at such an early age, Dad? A big mistake. I regret it. And I know your lives have been ruined, both of you. And I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for letting you see Terminator uh, at that age, at that uh, vulnerable age. What went into your thinking process there when Graham, I'm sure, was asking you to see this movie? I mean, you knew what it was. You, you're familiar with film. You, you recommend so much to us, and you kept up with it. So why did you think, okay, this is fine for these young kids to see? I probably did not think it was fine for these young people to see those films. But as a parent, it's a process and when you your guidance for going to movies is from the film industry uh the ratings what g p g p g thirteen r n c seventeen okay uh there's your guide okay this movie's rated r restricted under seventeen not admitted without parent or guardian there's my role I have a choice to make it's not against the law for you to see these films it's my responsibility as your parent or guardian to be there with you and I suppose explain what might be occurring or to otherwise shield you from what could be traumatic from your experience. But, you know, films are something I've loved for throughout my life, and uh, I uh, just took it as my responsibility to, to own it, own the decision to allow you to see a film like that, and to explain it. Uh, also, there's a lot of pressure from a kid. Uh, when they're little, the, the I want to see it, I want to see it. And then you get the why. Why can't I see it? Why? And you have to deal with that constantly. And uh, sometimes you say no. Sometimes you say hell no. And sometimes you say yes. And then sometimes you say we'll see. You have to process what, what a good choice is. It required me to do my homework over the years in terms of uh, uh, deciding whether or not you could see something. But I also don't view films as generally warping a mind from a two-hour experience. I think they can certainly have effects on people, but again, if you have your parent involved in a child's life, uh, they can help to uh, maybe process what, what that experience and then uh, uh, help a child understand what might have happened. And then it's an action movie, and it was rough-edged, I, I, I suppose, for a six-year-old and a what, nine-year-old? How old was Graham when he saw that? About nine, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, I had to own it. But I'm interested in what Corey's uh, experience was, too, yeah. as, a young, as a youngster. Well, before his, we get there, yeah. uh, Corey, I want to ask Graham really fast about this Terminator 2 thing. Graham, do you remember asking Dad to see this movie, and do you remember the feeling that you had when he gave us permission to see it? Yeah, I mean, I remember that I think what also kind of set it up was uh, that some neighborhood kids... Uh, who were my same age, had gone to see it, and that was just like, okay, you know, these guys got to see it. It was just part of my argument. You know, the, these these were literally, they were like political arguments. They were like You're nine states. years old, Graham. Your political <laughs> argument. Well, that's what I want to know. It's like, you know, I put so much thought and, and, and effort and oftentimes passion into trying to convince mom and dad to let me see certain things. I'm, I'm curious... As to like what it was like from from your perspective, Dad, to have a nine year old, you know, come up with all these arguments, you know, and, and wanting to see, you know, basically begging and, and plotting and coming up with with little caveats, and you know, what is that like, Frey? I mean, I can imagine having that conversation with a nine year old kid. Well, it happened a lot. The only one that I recall being concerned about, not Terminator, uh, but uh, the Good Son, that was the one that I had some uh, concern about after you'd seen that and your uh, behavior when you were 11 or so in relation to being jealous of Macaulay Culkin and uh, becoming the, the the bad seed for, a, a thankfully, a short period of time. But I'm sure the effects may be lingering. Uh, but uh, that's the only one I can remember that really bothered me. But you eventually let him see it. He saw that in the theater, and I, I was with him for that one, too. I think he was seeing it for the second time. And by the end of the movie, there's something that happens. I don't know if you've seen this movie yeah, before. Yeah, I have. But I remember we were in the Bama 6 movie theater, and after the climax, my brother, you know, who uh, has some influence over me, 
stands up and starts applauding at the screen after what has just happened on screen. And I don't know if I'm supposed to do this too. And I think I, I think at that time I stood up too and started applauding because my big brother uh, after after the climax of that movie. Yes. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he stood up and started applauding. So. Honestly, yeah, you, there might be lingering effects, Dad. Because I guess I mean, the good news is we're not still talking about the good son. Nobody's talking about the good son. <laughs> <laughs> well, Corey, this brings us to you. I think you told me what your first R-rated movie in the theater was, and you're a few years younger than me, yeah. Graham. But remind people what that was and talk a little bit about whether or not you had these same battles with your parents on seeing films in the theater. I'm pretty sure that my first R-rated movie in theaters was Air Force One, um, which was 1997, I guess. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure, and I, and I can't recall exactly, that I had seen R- other R-rated movies on video you know, just at home. Um, but really, I you know, I, I don't know exactly what sparked or opened the gate, so to speak. But I've got to think that maybe it was the popularity of Titanic that did it. Because really, that's a pretty forgiving PG-13, and yet everybody in the world saw that movie. So I, I feel like after that point, my mom sort of figured, eh, he saw Titanic, whatever, and just after that, you know, as long as it wasn't she, she's not a big horror movie fan, so she would be like, you know, maybe maybe we'll see the horror movies. But after that, uh, it was it was generally okay. There were some concerns about some other things. Do you remember any movies that you wanted to see that they would not let you? Yeah, probably American Beauty. Honestly, I don't think I saw that until until DVD, but I did see it like when it immediately when it came out on DVD. 1998 was kind of the big year for me in regards to seeing R-rated movies or more having more access to it because we moved to a place we had HBO. You know, they're showing movies, not necessarily R-rated movies, but that's sort of when I mean I'd always been interested in film. But that's sort of when it's it, it really sort of took root with movies, I guess, like Pleasantville and Rushmore. Pleasantville is PG-13, but it's kind of hard-edged, and Rushmore, of course, is rated R. And then they showed, like, Deep Blue Sea a bunch on on HBO, which I just thought was fun. But I, I don't think that my parents were ever tremendously protective. I, mean, I saw Jaws from a pretty early age. I mean, that movie is rated PG, technically, but that's still one of the most terrifying things you could see. It's pretty edgy, but I saw that. I mean, I saw, I was really, really young when I saw that. So I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it was determined on a case-by-case basis until about 2002 when I just started driving to movies, and at that point the battle was lost. You know, I hope my mom listens to this, because when I started buying DVDs, I guess that was about 2000, 2001, and there were titles that I was not allowed to have, particularly the Quentin Tarantino films, but I had them, and they were hidden in a drawer, as, you know, somebody might, like, hide Playboy magazines or something like that. I, I hid Quentin Tarantino movies. They were discovered, and that was not a happy moment, but but I kept them, so that was good. Well, we might get to this, but you were not the only one who did that. We still have a grandmother who has a house where we would go watch a lot of movies, and uh, when movies would come out in the video stores, Grant, the, the, there was a video store um, nearby where we could walk if we needed to and we would often go there and they would rent anything out to young kids who weren't of age they would just rent whatever blockbuster would card you yeah but this other store would not and uh, Graham on Tuesdays when these movies would come out would go there at 10 a.m. and rent these movies I mean it might be Pulp Fiction it might be Casino these are two movies we weren't allowed <laughs> to see in the theater dad put the he put the stamp on it said no sir you're not going to see those but Dad, I want to tell another quick story here um, that I remember, and Graham might have another one, but this one really sticks out for me. I remember it very well. Graham had done a little research, and there was another R-rated movie that he wanted to see that I don't think you were very crazy about. It was Train Spotting, the Danny Boyle movie about heroin addicts starring Ewan McGregor, and this was in 1996, so I was about 13. I guess Graham was 16 at that point, 15 or 16, and... 
Graham had done his research. I think he had either read the script or bought a, the book or something like that, and he came to you and I guess made a compelling enough argument. And finally, you said, "Okay, we'll go see Transpotting, but I'm going to take you. I'm going to go with you." And we had to go to Birmingham. And so, of course, I wanted to tag along. I knew I wasn't going to be able to see Transpotting. This was kind of like a one one person deal here. Graham was going to get to see it, but not me. And so I said, "Okay, well, let me just find a movie that's playing at the same theater. I still want to go on the trip." And it turns out that the movie I wanted to see was The Crow: City of Angels. And I was a big fan of the first Crow movie, and Dad knew that. And this movie was R-rated too, but it was different. The The content was a little different. It was another action movie, I guess, like Terminator 2 and the movies I'd seen. And you knew that I liked The Crow. And so I didn't know what I was in store for with The Crow City of Angels, believe me. But so we go to the theater. It might have been the Galleria Theater. I can't remember. And we get to the box office. And Dad says, two for train spotting and one for The Crow City of Angels for him. And the box office guy says, I'm sorry, we can't allow a minor to go see an R rated movie without the accompaniment of an adult. I can't go see that, and there's nothing else that's PG or PG-13 playing at the same time, I guess. And so Dad looks down at me and says, well, I guess you're going to see Train Spotting too." <laughs> and I'm 13 years old, and literally I'm a little terrified at this point because I've heard nothing but just crazy things about this movie, and it's taken so much from Graham, so much effort from Graham well, tell me this. to convince in, you to see this now, movie. Now, Ben and, and Graham, what was more effective in uh, keeping you from abusing drugs, dare or train spotting? <laughs> Probably train spotting for sure, but you know, touche. Yeah, I mean, we didn't we didn't indulge in that lifestyle at all after train spotting or before then either. But yeah, I got to go see that with y'all. It was kind of like a roller coaster experience, and I mean, I just wonder. It happened and it was spontaneous for you, but I just wonder what's what's going through a parent's head when he's presented with that kind of challenge. You have to make that decision. Are we going to just go home because we can't leave my younger son alone while we go see this movie? Or are we going to bring him in here and let and him see this? That's my responsibility yeah. as a parent, to just take on the, the burden or uh, assume the, the role of uh, being the uh, person that provides guidance as you face these transitions. Uh, in, in my business, I'm supposed to know a little bit about human development and the adolescent mind is uh, is going from childhood to adulthood, and it's it's no turning. There's no turning back, and you want to help a, ch a child in that position learn how to be an adult. You're, you're, it's it's lab in a way, and you got to be there for the adolescents. So you uh, press down too hard and uh, put out the flame. That that's a problem. So you allow allow kids to kind of pursue what they want to pursue, and then they hopefully learn along the way. And but they're not doing it without a tether, so to speak. So. That's where I found myself often with you guys uh, in those movie uh, dilemmas. There, uh, I had to make a I had to make a choice. I had to make responsible choices, or what I thought uh, were uh, responsible choices. I'm trying to look at it from Dad's perspective here, and how I might look at it one day when I'm in his situation. It's like with transporting. A lot of people that went to that movie, they wanted to see it. Oh, it's a movie about heroin. Like, let's go see what that world is like, and. You know, let's see that depicted on the big screen, you know. But for me, it wasn't, I didn't want to see train spotting because I was intrigued by junkies. You know, I wanted to see it because I wanted to see that tracking shot of you and McGregor running down the street with Lust for Life playing. And I wanted to see these cool freeze frames that I knew were going to happen. It wasn't, it wasn't so much about the content, the, the content of the movie, what it was about is I wanted to see this cool movie from this cool new director that I've been reading about in reviews. I, I wanted that experience. I wanted I wanted to see how it was shot. I wanted to see these new actors. I wanted to experience that soundtrack. Okay, you're making me you're making me seem like a prophet now, Graham. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, I I let you guys see these movies, and and what are you doing now? You're on a radio show talking about film as as adults. So the prophecy is fulfilled. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like if the kid, if you know, if, if the kid wants to go see, if you, if you get the vibe, you know that the kid is like on some kind of heroin drug culture obsession and yeah maybe keep them away from it but if if you can tell that they're obviously just intrigued by film and filmmaking then they're coming from a different place and and maybe but, but then that brings me to another point so when i was growing up it seemed it seemed like i would always gravitate towards the action section whenever we'd go to the video store and that that's what i really wanted was was, was the action movie. yeah uh do you think that some parents taking has taken their son for the first time to the movies to see Machete. Yes, I do. I did. It probably happens. It probably I think, does. Yeah, I, think, 
I was at Shutter Island, and some they had, there were like toddlers in the theater <laughs> in Times Square. Well, People are crazy. But why do you think you, this you sound is, like a parent, Graham? Well, why do you think it is that, that that young young kids and young boys gravitate so much to action? I mean, we grew up in the era of Schwarzenegger, John Claude Van and this is the stuff we wanted to see. Why, you know, and, and we we were allowed to see some of it, but not all of it. Why? Why do you think that is that that kids want? want that you know that they want that experience well it's uh a matter of a lot of influences <laughs> probably your toys your action toys and uh, the business of marketing to to kids all that's the, the explosions the the over-the-top characters it just uh, is attractive to to kids and uh it's marketed to you and you you desire it but then you but then in turn though you wouldn't just let us indulge in that totally you wouldn't say okay uh, you can see um, the new Steven Seagal movie. You know, you're 10 years old. Why would you then? You're uh, welcome. Get in the way. <laughs> why would you? I, well, you did take us all to see Under Siege, but why, why would you? Um, that was because it was filmed in Mobile, in USS Alabama. Okay, right. There's That's the only that. Steven Seagal movie I've ever paid money to see. <laughs> but then, but why would you? You know, you, you talk about how kids have that inclination towards explosions and action and violence. Then why would you, what was the harm in seeing it, and why would you uh, not allow us to see some of these movies sometimes? Well, it was my own homework, my discretion, or my, your mom and my discretion. Sometimes we didn't do it as well as others, but I felt like I was as uh, up to speed on um, on movies as anybody. Well, just I felt like I was up to speed to some degree, and I was making choices on your behalf as, as my, my children. Did you ever butt heads with mom on any of the choices? We didn't butt heads much about the movies. Uh, we might have discussed them, but it never was a matter of yes/no clash. So, well, it was always confusing for us because you would let us see some and not others. Mm-hmm. And I remember we watched a lot of R-rated movies when we were younger before we saw them at the theater. Meaning, mm-hmm. I was watching R-rated movies when I was probably five years old. I remember uh, we spent a lot of time at your mom's house too, and we would rent movies and take them over there. And I remember watching Aliens for the first time on video. Probably when I was about five years old, I saw that movie, and I, I just couldn't believe I was watching it when I was watching it. it. Again, it was one of those things where I was like, wow, this is what R-rated movies are like. These are so cool, you know? But you wouldn't let us see some. You would let us see others. I remember we would go to Video Supermart in Tuscaloosa, which always had this great deal of you buy one, get one free, a new release and an old release. And they had this very eclectic selection that wasn't in any sort of order. <laughs> it was just thrown out there, not in alphabetical order. You just kind of had to pick and see what you found. And you would recommend sometimes to us some R-rated movies. You would recommend your favorite film, Blade Runner, to us. And we watched that at a young age. I remember you recommended the movie Slapshot to us when we were young children. And we watched that at a young age. But you can't see Pulp Fiction, you know, and you can't see Casino. But watch this instead. And your recommendations were always good recommendations. Looking back, you wanted us to see good films. And Graham, you can speak to this too, Corey. Maybe you can, but I remember even if there was a lot of action, we might be able to see it. Profanity, we might be able to see it. But we would ask you, why can't we see this? And you would say, because it has adult themes. Graham, do you remember that? Oh, absolutely. Adult situations, adult themes. What did you mean by adult themes when you would tell us that, Dad? I want to know 20 years later. Well, just from my own experience and uh, looking back at my own history of seeking to see these adult films as a as a young person. The Graduate, I remember, I was probably uh, maybe 12 when The Graduate came out, but I'd seen the trailers and I really wanted to see that movie. And, uh, you know, seeing it again 25 years later, what was going on in The Graduate just went right over my head. Uh, So those adult themes were not obvious to me at the time. And uh, sometimes you uh, just have to, to make choices based upon what you think it's is going to be available to you for your entertainment, for your uh, experience at the at the film. If I don't think it's going to be something you, you're going to enjoy or uh, appreciate, I'd say no. Well, Corey, I don't know what your plans are for the future, but say you have kids. I mean, have you ever thought about at what age you will let them see these kinds of movies? Or like you said before, is this going to be a case-by-case thing? I mean, it, it would probably be a case-by-case thing. I don't know that I would like exactly start you know, any potential children's film education with, like, Jaws or something like mine inadvertently was. You know, I was sort of thrown into the deep end there with that, maybe. But um, I don't I don't know. I, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about it. But there, there are 
to the to the credit of, of modern filmmakers, a great number of very very artistically valid children's movies, particularly lately with with Pixar, with uh, just the last couple decades. You know, the Pixar movies, the Iron Giant, you know, anything by Hayao Miyazaki, things like that. Children's movies aren't becoming unbearable for parents. I mean, there still are those, too, but there are enough good children's movies to sort of ease into a transition of, of more serious movies. And then, you know, right after that, right after, you know, we stop with Disney, we jump immediately into 12 Angry Men. <laughs> Well done. Well, straw dogs. Yeah, <laughs> that's one I don't think Dad would let us see. Jade. Yeah, <laughs> Jade. That's one. Great. That's one Dad wouldn't let Graham see. Actually, Dad, why wouldn't you let me see Sea of Love when I was five? <laughs> see what? Sea of Love. <laughs> All right, you guys have the burden now, like yeah. Corey was saying, of uh, making those choices when you have kids, yeah. deciding what's best, what's not, what what to see, what not to see. Well, we appreciate it, Dad, and uh, we're we're running out of time here. And Corey, quickly, if you could just give us a few DVD picks. Well, there's not a whole lot that came out this past week that I'm in love with. The best of the bunch, and I didn't expect really to enjoy it based on reviews, was Robert Redford's The Conspirator, Civil War era courtroom drama about the conviction of Mary Surratt, an alleged co-conspirator in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. It's not as good as it should be. It sometimes feels like a television reenactment, but James McAvoy is, is a very good leading man. It's got a great supporting cast, and if you're into history, I mean, you could do worse. A movie that I was kind of really disappointed in is, uh, is the new adaptation of Jane Eyre by director Kerry Fukunaga. I wanted to like it. I like Michael Fassbender. I like Mia Wasikowska. They're both really appealing performers, but there's just no spark here. It's ostensibly semi-gothic romantic drama based on the the novel by Charlotte Bronte, which you know I read I read that in high school and I had some recollection of it. And I remember there being more to it than this movie seems to present. It's just sort of flat. It's very beautifully shot, but sort of dramatically inert. Uh, otherwise. That's about it. The rest of the movies are pretty terrible. It came out this week. Well, help remind me what came out this weekend. What opened nationwide? Fright Night. This weekend. Yeah, yeah Fright, Fright Night, Night is out. Remake, uh, uh, Conan the Barbarian remake. Yeah. One Day, starring Anne Hathaway and Jim Sturgis. And <laughs> All movies that we passed on to review today. We thought Tree of Life would get the job done. On yeah, I saw Fright Night and Conan yesterday wow i've heard good things about fright night though apparently it's got a fresh tomato it's tomato <laughs> tomatometer it's bad it's a wasted opportunity colin farrell's fun but the screenplay is really terrible <laughs> okay well then we'll likely pass what a surprise yeah <laughs> dad what do you usually say dad when you see a movie trailer and you're not i just sold? saved 750 <laughs> that's right god i could 750 that would be nice <laughs> <laughs> well the bama art house film series 13. i only go to matinees <laughs> I paid 13 to see a documentary that's probably going to be on ESPN in four months. <laughs> Well, it's partially our fault, Graham. Sorry about that. But the Bama Art House film series will continue Tuesday night with Werner Herzog's documentary, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. at the Bama Theater in downtown Tuscaloosa. Graham, you saw this movie. A quick word on it? As we descend into the cave, <laughs> we notice the etchings are similar to the vine. No, it's... it's uh, it's a must-see for Herzog fans. He, he narrates it throughout, and that, that his narration is, is uh, alone worth the price of admission for me, um, and I, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, I agree with that. It's good. Well, you can email any of your feedback to 90.7movies at gmail.com. Find us at twitter.com slash aspectradio or facebook.com slash aspectradio. You can download this and other episodes of the show on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com. We'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And check us out on al.com. Just scroll down the homepage to find us in the entertainment section on Monday or search Aspect Radio. You can read Corey's DVD column in Tusk Magazine every Friday in the Tuscaloosa News. Be sure to visit our friend Matt Scalici's website, filmnerds.com, where you'll find a couple of new posts there. One written by our friend Ben Stark about seven DC comic adaptations that need movies, and he even picks the directors that should make them. 
And I wrote one drawing parallels between the animated Transformers the movie and last summer's NBA free agency controversy, so definitely check those out. <laughs> a bit of a stretch, but it worked for me. And this is our final show on 90.7 FM, so we would like to extend our thanks to the station managers and staff here who have let us come on here on Saturday mornings to put the show on for the past couple of years. We've definitely had fun, but we will continue to podcast our show, so fans, don't worry too much, and we'll let you know on those websites Corey mentioned on how to find those yeah our dozens of fans that's right there that's right our biggest one is in studio with us now so we appreciate it and thanks again to you dad and Graham for joining us today I, I, I enjoyed the discussion and this is something that we again can explore like the tree of life we could probably spend an entire show on each of these so we appreciate your time this morning thanks for having me absolutely thank you and until next week I'm Ben Flanagan and I'm Corey Kraft this is Aspect Radio thanks for listening Hi. Hi, uh, Mr. Scarber here? Yeah. The thing about him, he's down with the flu. He's sick. Really? Yeah. I'd invite you inside, except it's contagious. Don't want to start an epidemic. No, of course not. Uh, it's only he called last night and asked if I'd come by. Well, he didn't have it last night. What's that? Well, I'd, I'd like to leave a message, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, you have to excuse me now. I have to go back inside. Bye.